0: prayer before we get to our text. Father God, we thank you this morning. We've heard enough gospel already in the songs we've sung to save the world over. We would pray that we would uh, focus our minds for a few moments here this morning on what you would have to say to us in the word. We need your help. We need your help to understand where we're wrong as a society, wrong as a culture, we need realignment this morning, Father, so we pray that you would give it to us out of your grace and out of your mercy. Help us understand what it means for marriage, the implications for our lives and our children. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, good morning. Uh, this morning we're continuing our series through the book of Mark. If you've been with us uh, from the beginning of this journey, which actually started uh, two years ago, uh, and you've been keeping count, as I have, You will know this is the 27th sermon from the book of Mark. And I skipped a chapter. I realized that this past week, skipped chapter 5 accidentally. Uh, And just as a quick update of where we're heading over the next few weeks, this week and next week we'll be covering Mark 10, 1 through 12. Uh, Then together on Resurrection Sunday, we'll do a resurrection sermon. uh, After which, we'll jump back into Mark for about four weeks, finish up chapter 10, uh, before preparing for our summer series, which will be based out of the Psalms, which I am. Uh, excited for, excited for. Uh, but this morning, let's go ahead and take a look at our text here. This morning, Mark chapter ten, verse one. And he left there, Jesus, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. Now let's just stop right there for a minute. <clears throat> here we have Jesus leaving Capernaum, where he had been teaching his disciples a lesson on what true greatness looks like. And he goes to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Don't miss this. Small progression here that Mark wants us to see. We read these words so fast that we, we can often miss what he's doing. You see, ever since Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah in chapter 8, Christ has set his face towards Jerusalem. And the whole flow of the book now changes streams and directions. No longer are we primarily wondering or pondering the question, Who is Jesus? Rather, we're beginning to ponder and question what does it look like for the Son of Man, Jesus, to suffer? Many things. What does it look like for Jesus to be rejected by the elders? What does it look like for the chief priests and the scribes to reject him? Ultimately, the question is, what does it mean for the one for which the world has waited for so long to see who has now arrived to simply be killed and rise three days later? So the confession... Chapter 8 happened at Caesarea Philippi, if you were paying attention. Chapter 9, we see Jesus and his disciples pass through Galilee and head on into Capernaum, and now they are in Judea. Just for you visual folks, Jerusalem's down here on a map. Up top, you have Caesarea Philippi. Moving down a little further south, you have Galilee and Capernaum. Now we're off to the side beyond the Jordan River in Judea. Christ is making a path towards Jerusalem. Don't miss it. Chapters 8, and 10, 8 through 10 in the Gospel of Mark are calls of radical Christian discipleship, and the text before us this morning bears that out. Notice there at the end of verse 1, though, he teaches them. Mark reminds us this was normal. This is what Christ does. It's what he did. He would teach. He would stop. He would instruct. This was Jesus' primary crowd gathering. People gathered because of sicknesses and healing and miracles. People wanted to see a man pull loaves out of a hat. But understand the crowds gathered to listen to Jesus as much as anything else because what this man had to say was wild. Outrageous claims. Believers, if you profess Christ as your Lord and King, do you listen to his words? Are you learning at his feet? Are you asking him to give you understanding for his teachings? The most amazing thing in the church today is the number of Christians, supposed Christians who do not actually listen to what Christ has to say. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, just checking Christianity out, then the one thing you need to know is that Christ was a miracle worker, but more than that, he was a teacher. You must look to him. You must hear his word. That's why the scriptures are so important to us here at Calvary Baptist Church. We believe the Bible is God's word for us. This is why it's primary in all the things that we do. Right this morning, we sang the song, Christ is mine forevermore. Which gets its words from Philippians 3, 7 through 11. It says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for Christ, the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus My Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. We also sang what a friend we have in Jesus. Which gets its words from Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. You see, the scriptures are central to us. That's why we teach them. It's why we preach them. It's why we sing them. Last week we sang How Great, which gets its lyrics directly from Psalm 145. It says this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever And ever great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. Friends, why? Why do we do this? Because we believe the Scriptures to be the very Word of God. And in every aspect of the gathered body, we want that to be central. We want to orient our lives around that. If you've come to just hear me speak, you're only going to hear the Scriptures. We learn from Jesus. We listen to Him. That's what Mark's saying here, verse 1 let look like at the main thing in today's text. Look at verse 2. Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here we have the Pharisees doing what Pharisees do. Once again, coming to test Christ. Notice the Pharisees have started playing a different game, though. You see, back in chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel, we've seen the Pharisees approach Jesus to try to tear him down, Based on their own traditions of washing their hands before they eat. Because they believe that by simply eating with dirty hands, that one could defile themselves and Christ set them straight based upon the scriptures. That it's not what from out from without that defiles us, it's from within. But notice this time now, they've come to him with a law question. Is it lawful? Is it right? Is it wrong for a man to divorce his wife? They ask a more pointed question this time. Notice Jesus' response. He says, what does Moses command you? And they replied with Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which says that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But notice, Jesus rebuts this. He says that Moses did this because of the hardness of their hearts. And here's what you need to notice at the start of verse 6. Like this conjunction between verse 5 and verse 6 is the key to understanding what Jesus' response to the question of, can I get a divorce is, he says, it is because of the hardness of your heart he wrote this commandment. But or however from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Let's, let's just pause for a moment here. What's Jesus doing? Where's he getting these words from? Genesis 1. Genesis 1.27 says this, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. Male and female, he created them so this morning I want to wade into some, some choppy waters some choppy waters one of the primary issues of our day is that we do not actually know what marriage is and here's how we know that our culture doesn't understand marriage according to Pew research back in 2019 the marriage rate in America had declined 8% from 1990 they conclude one of the primary driving factors is this Americans are staying single longer some other statistics here it says love is the most important reason to get married, more so than making a lifelong commitment, more than companionship, more than having children. This is what the world says marriage is for. Cohabitation is rising up 29% in 2016 from nine years previous. Support of same-sex marriage is 48% looked upon by Gen Z saying this is a good thing for society. of all marriages will end in divorce or separation. 60% of all second marriages end in divorce or separation. 73% of all third marriages end in divorce or separation. Every 42 seconds, there is one divorce in America. You see, we live in times where the world thinks marriage is simply a formality, a thing to which you simply seal the deal. Nothing beyond that. We consider marriage to be something cheap, not of importance, not of value. We have ignored the scripture's definitions of marriage and traded the language of covenants for the language of contracts. We live in a society where same-sex marriages are celebrated and applauded, listen, even in churches. So here's how I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. I want to ground us in the biblical definition of marriage and here's the question I want to have in the back of your mind this morning: How does the world know what marriage is? How do they know what the definition of marriage is? Can the world explain to us why someone should get married? Can they tell us what is its purpose? No, they cannot. You see, if we look to Disney to explain to us what marriage is and should be, we will be up a creek. You see, the world learns from us what marriage is. The the world learns from the scriptures what marriage is. Now, I want to be pastoral this morning. Because I think there are few things in life which cause more harm to the flourishing of humanity than to see marriages destroyed and divorces rampant in our society. Now, I know many in this room have experienced divorces, either personally, yourself, watching your parents walk through a divorce, or holding the hand of a loved one who has themselves walked through tragic divorce. And the question the Pharisees wanted to know, is this okay? Before we get to Jesus' answer, we need to understand the foundation upon which Jesus knew marriage to be. Few things in life are more devastating to the flourishing of humanity than marriage understood wrongly. Few things cause as much heartache, brokenness, grief, and devastation as marriage is understood wrongly. Not only to those who are immediately a part of it, but this leads to generational brokenness. You see, my parents were divorced, separated. Both my stepdad and my biological father separated. Both of, or uh, really all three of their parents separated or divorced. And their parents' parents. This is a generational thing. It's not just me or you. It's not mere coincidence that I'm a product of multiple generations who did not understand marriage. This is not simply bad luck of the draw. This is what it looks like to see brokenness handed down from one generation to the next. And I realize we come from all walks of life in here, come from all different backgrounds, come from all over the place on what marriage means, what divorce means, is divorce okay, how do we handle abusive situations, or any number of tough situations we are probably all over the place. So what I want to do in the time that I have remaining is I want to show us from the scriptures the foundation of marriage and what marriage tells us about reality. Those two things, foundation of marriage and what marriage tells us about reality. And here's what I hope to accomplish in this sermon. Number one, I want us to recapture a high view of the greatness of marriage. I want us to no longer settle for the world's definition of marriage. Something low, something to be discarded. Recapture a high view of marriage. Recapture the language of covenants as opposed to the language of contracts. And number three, that we would be strengthened in our own marriages here at this church. So let's go to the foundation of marriage. Let's begin where Jesus began. Let's go back to Genesis. Flip in your Bible to Genesis In the first chapter of the Bible, we have the creation account of the world. If you've ever wondered, where did the trees come from? Where did the fish come from? Where did the birds come from? Where did we come from? And this is what the first chapter of the Bible aims to answer for us. And it's a beautiful account, really, because here we have God creating everything. We're not here by mere accident, mere chance. We are here intentionally, on purpose, with design in mind. And this is beautiful. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but there's a, there's a pattern that actually plays out. Have you ever noticed, what's the first thing God creates on day one? Anybody remember this from Sunday school with the scriptures? The day and the night. He creates the day and the night. Day number two, he creates the earth and the seas. Day number three, he creates the trees and the vegetation of the world. Day number four, he creates the stars, the moon, the sun. Day number five, he creates the fish and the birds. And day number six, he creates livestock and mankind. What's he doing here? Notice verse two of Genesis chapter one with me. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the of the waters. You see, verse 2 is actually the pattern for which God will then create all of creation. You see, days 1, 2, and 3, he was simply forming the world. Verse 2, it says it was without form and void. And so, days 1 through 3, he's forming. He's creating day and night. He's creating earth and seas, trees, and vegetation. But notice on the other hand, day 4, 5, and 6, he's filling them. Verse 2 is that, Pattern for the rest of the creation account. He's forming and then filling. Absolutely stunning. And it is to this that Jesus takes his audience. This forming of mankind. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. what is Jesus doing here in Mark chapter 10? He's grounding his hearers. Back to the creation narrative. Back to the first man and the first woman. Back before the fall. Before corruption. Now look at chapter 2. Verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and they were created in the day when the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6 And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. There's verse 7. This is a zooming in from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We've now zoomed in to that moment. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God created Adam, the first man, and he puts him in a garden. This creation was different than all the other creations. No other creation in all the created order was created like this. This was unique, set apart, wholly other than the dogs, than the cats, than the gorillas, or any other creature. This man is different. He said, well, pastor, what in the world does that have to do with marriage? I'm glad you asked. You see, my first point under the foundation of marriage is that marriage is a good thing. Look at verse 18, chapter 2. God's created this perfect man, put him in a perfect garden, in a perfect world. And notice what he says here in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Perfect man, perfect world, and yet this is the first time God has said something's not good, something's not right, something's wrong. What is it? Adam's all by himself. It's not good that man should be alone. You and I crave to be known. I don't know if you know Yeah, right, Pastor? No, no, no. Like, the most stoic among us, the most reserved among us, have in our wiring a desire to be seen, known, and loved. It's simply the way God created us to be. So deep companionship is a human longing. We desire to be known. listen, you know what? The divorce rate in America tells me that we're really bad at.'re really bad at being fully known, giving ourselves to another person, but we long it. We try to fill it with all the wrong things in life. That's what I hate about social media. Is it pretends to meet this very need, the need of deep companionship to be known, and yet we have never been more isolated and more unknown than we are today. Deep companionship is a human longing, and notice that God is the provider of this longing. He's the one who fills the need. Notice it wasn't Adam who came to God and said, You know what, man? I could sure use a friend. Rather, it was God taking the initiative and saying, I will make him a companion. Look at verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. This is immediately after God had said, it's not good for this cat to be alone. God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... It was not a helper fit for him. So you get this weird scene, right, where we kind of learn in Sunday school that, like, all the giraffes got their name from Adam. Like, that was the one thing that God wanted to do. Like, giraffe, bird, ant, uh, butterfly. And we think, like, that, that's the point. Like that, We think, that. oh, well, you know, God did that so everyone would have a name. No, 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 no. If we could get into the Hebrew here for a minute, there's something more profound going on. Look at verse 21. So the Lord calls a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the lord god had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man then the man said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see, what happens here is it's almost as if as, as God is parading the animals by Adam, he says, not like me, not like me, not like me, not like me. All of a sudden, he goes to sleep, wakes up, he's like, bam! Like, like me! That's why he calls her woman. The Hebrew, the, 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 the Hebrew word for woman is isha. For she came from ish. me, Woman from man. See, God provides it. Notice that there in verse 23, or verse 22, there at the end of the verse, who brings the woman to the man? God does. God designed. He brought her to Adam. God provides. Number three, marriage is the highest human relationship. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, who's talking here? Does matter? Okay. Who's talking here? God. That's right. God is talking here. We know this because Jesus said in Matthew uh, 19, this is, uh, this is Jesus answering the same question. He said, He answered them, Have you not read? that He, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. You see, this is God talking here. According to Jesus, God is the one talking. God is the one who's saying these things. In fact, this verse from Matthew 19 is one of the strongest defenses that God actually inspired the Old Testament because Christ Himself just said so. And so this relationship, man Woman, husband, wife. The one between a husband and a wife becomes the strongest human bond in all the world. The strongest human bond in all the world is the one between a husband and a wife. We know this because God just said the man's going to leave his father and his mother. Now question, who's Adam's father? He didn't. He didn't have one. God, if we wanted to give an answer. So what's he meaning here, right? He's saying that no longer is the the, the closest relationship for humans who your parents were. Rather, the closest relationship for people becomes their spouse. Now, I know we have Mother's Days in a few weeks. And the world will tell us that the bond between a mother and her babies is the strongest human relationship. Now, question, why does the world say that? Yeah, they're wrong, that's for sure. (laughs) Here's why. Because we have such a low view of what marriage actually is. I'm telling you, based upon the scriptures, a right ordering of human relationships is the relationship between spouses over and above the relationship you have with your own children. Think about it. If you guys know the the, the preacher, Paul Washer, he he would illustrate this. He would say, I'm going I'm to illustrate what this actually means by using an extreme example. He would say, imagine as a husband, you go to a lake with your wife and your children, and the boat topsizes, and your wife and your children are drowning. Paul Washer says, who do you save? He would say, your spouse. Strongest human relationship. Ever over and above your children. Now, what would it look like if we actually lived this way? What if parents started prioritizing their spouses over their children? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't love your children, don't hear me say that. But one day your children will grow up and leave your house and you will have your spouse there and nobody else. But our culture today has this all twisted, doesn't it? All out of sorts. We bend and break our backs in order to make sure our children have the newest clothing, the newest gadgets, and are on all the traveling sports teams to be to the detriment of our spouses. You see, the proper order is God first, spouse second, children third. That's an order. It's a God-given order of all of life. This is what it looks like for life to be properly ordered. Now, why am I advocating for such a high view of marriage, right? So if you, if you believe this, if you are saying, okay, pastor, like, why? Why, do, why should I prioritize my marriage like that? Why should I do that? Why am I saying that this is the most important relationship you could ever have? Listen, it's because in God creating marriage, he was not simply creating a thing for the enjoyment of a man and a woman. There was something far deeper going on here. You see, marriage is speaking something about reality. Flipping your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage speaks of reality. Ephesians 5 verse 22 says this. I know this is out of a out of vogue with our culture today. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and his is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now look look at verse 31 here with me. Where is Paul getting this? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Stunning. You see what Paul is saying here, that this idea, this foundation of marriage from the beginning was meant to tell a story. And that story was to be the story of Christ and his church. You see, if your marriage is supposed to tell the story of Christ's love for the church, then what does it mean when we take such a lackadaisical view of marriage? If we refer to our marriages as a ball and chain, fellows, what does that say to the world about Christ's love for the church? You see, one of the reasons in the church... We are taking such a low view of marriage as we have such a low view of God himself. You see, we bring to our marriages such a small view of God that he, most of the time, plays no vital role in our marriage. We relegate him to the dinnertime prayers or career advancement prayers. Our view of him is so vague, not clear, not crisp, that we struggle to find the words to describe him or to even know of his importance in our daily lives. And because of this, when it comes to marriage, we have no concept of how to think about God and marriage. But notice that in this section of Ephesians, from whom does the man take his cues? Who does he learn from? Who does he follow? He follows Christ in his sacrificial living and his sacrificial dying for his wife. You see, he gives himself up daily as Christ gave himself up for the church, for his bride. Listen, how did Christ... Give himself for the church. He laid down his life, brothers. Died. Infinite power, infinite knowledge, infinite everything. And he died. For what purpose? So that he could buy himself a bride. Now listen, let's let's pause for a minute. Because oftentimes us men, we have trouble with being called the bride of Christ. But it's okay because oftentimes in the scriptures. The ladies are called the sons of God. So if they're the sons of God, then fellas, we have to be the bride of Christ. Nothing here to offend us all. It is from Christ that we follow. It's Christ we mimic in pursuing our wives. From whom does the woman take her cues then? From the church. You see, she lovingly and willingly submits to her husband as the church itself submits to Christ. This means that in all things, the church follows Christ's lead, so the wife follows the lead of her husband. So here's the question. What happens when this pattern is followed? What happens when a man gives himself up? He dies to himself, to his desires, to his wishes, to his ambitions, to his aspirations, in order to sanctify his wife. What happens... When a wife submits to her husband, not begrudgingly, but lovingly, here's what happens. The world calls it foolish, patriarchal. They call it a bad thing. But here's what actually happens. The world will lie to you every day, and it does. Here's what actually happens when this kind of pattern is actually lived out. Flourishing, vitality, exuberance, vibrancy, life, energy. Now, what happens when this type of living doesn't line up? What happens when we get this all out of sorts? What happens when a man abdicates his God-given responsibility to lovingly lead his wife as Christ loved the church? What happens when boys father children out of wedlock with no plans of a lifetime commitment? What happens when men take and use their biological wiring for bigger strength and bigger size and use it as a force of power to exert control over their wives? What happens? What happens when a woman who wants to have power instead of submitting, and so they nitpick and nag and use the power of their tongue as a means of manipulation? Does that lead to human flourishing? Of course not leads to a million different ways of destruction you see husbands and wives your marriage is supposed to speak the reality of christ's love for his church unmarried person contemplating a future marriage know that your future marriage is to be a representation of christ's love to the church you see what paul says in ephesians five thirty two. he says that from the beginning when god said two shall become one flesh He's saying that what God was actually painting on the canvas of creation was the story of the gospel. It's what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to echo forth the gospel of self-sacrifice, of loving each other, of dying to yourself. You say, Pastor, that's impossible. How How do we do that? I'm glad you asked that question, too. We do it by reclaiming covenant language, not contractual language. You see, we must remove the shackles of our modern society with our fixation on ourselves. We are so conditioned to the language of contracts today because they're all about us. The world will tell you you're number one. They will tell you you are awesome. They're partly right. Some of you I'm not sure about. But the world will say that everything is about you. Your marriage, guess what? It's about you, homie. You better get what you want. Don't let that woman tell you what to do. Women, don't tell you that. You know, you're number one. Don't let that man. Ain't no, ain't, ain't no reason you got to submit. You do what you want. You're your own person. That's what the world says. I don't know why they sound like that. They're wild. But listen, that's not the way we talk on our wedding day, is it? part in every marriage where the giving of the vows. It's beautiful, isn't it? Language like, for better or for worse. We here, Sticking it out. In sickness and in health. For richer and for poorer. Now imagine, imagine we were having a wedding here tomorrow and you all invited. So you bring your microwave package as a wedding gift, put it on a table, they get up here, the couple, they get up here and they go to do their vows and they say something like this I will love you as long as you make $80,000 a year a woman to the man to which the man says I will love you as long as you stay the same weight you are right now is that, is that too real? what would you do? You get up, you go pick your microwave up, and you tell you, you, you go put that sucker on Amazon or something. Because you ain't wasting your money. You see, we don't talk like the language of contract on our wedding day. But oftentimes in our lives, we live that out, don't we? We live it out. Well, you better do for me. I'm scratching your back. You better scratch my back. And yet, that's not what Christ calls us to. It's not what marriage is. You see, throughout the Old Testament, Israel... Lack of faith was portrayed and verbalized as unfaithfulness in marriage terms. How many times did the word call Israel unfaithful bride, wandering spouse? Right, the whole story of Hosea, right where Hosea, you know, God tells Hosea to go marry the prostitute, or go marry the prostitute, right? and he does, and then she leaves. What's he doing there? What's that story telling us? It's that God is the faithful one. We are the unfaithful ones. The story of Abraham, right? The covenant that God makes with Abraham. You remember, like, there they are. They're about ready to sacrifice. Night's coming, and what happens? God makes Abraham go to sleep. He walks through the middle of the contract by himself, therefore promising it. You see, there was no way Abraham could break the covenant because God had both sides of the covenant in his hands. God is the faithful one. We are the unfaithful ones. So let me, let me wrap up, because I've been going for a while here. Conclusion. in closing. implications for this life. Number one: marriage is a good gift given from God to be enjoyed. Therefore, love, serve and honor your spouse with every fiber of your being, giving yourself away daily. That's what you got to do? Why? Because Christ did. Christ did. We follow him. Number two, marriage is the highest human relationship you can have. Therefore, be fully committed above all other relationships to the relationship of your spouse. Number three, marriage is ultimately about Christ and the church. Therefore, work hard to make sure your marriage is accurately telling the gospel story, which will fuel your marriage through many storms. Three implications of the sermon. Now, I just want to have just a quick word to my singles, because I always get yelled at. Not everyone gets married, Pastor. I know. If you've been given the gift of singleness, consider yourself blessed and highly favored. Because God would say that singleness is a gift. Not given to all and not given to most. You see, our culture would say, well, Pastor, you gotta, you gotta address your singles. Yes, but that's the the not the norm of life. The norm of life is that we would be committed, a man and a woman, one relationship throughout all of life because that tells the story of the gospel. And just for a moment, let me be pastorally here because we all fail. We all mess up. We all fall short. That's why we need Christ daily. You see, Christ measures up for us when we do not measure up. Every time we drop the ball, Christ picks it up. Every time we stumble or fail, Christ is there to what? Forgive us again. In our marriages, in our singleness. Listen, we need to reclaim this high view of marriage in order to understand what Jesus is going to say to us next week. Because if you walk away like, whatever. What I'm going to say next week is going to sound horrible to you. Because what's the answer Jesus gives? What's the answer Jesus gives to the question I asked in Mark chapter ten? Pharisees homies come up, they say, "Jesus, are we allowed to get divorced." Jesus says, "What did Moses say?" Moses says, "I." And Jesus says, "Yeah, he said that because y'all sinners." But, however, from the beginning, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Marriage is supposed to be a lifetime commitment. Next week, we'll get into the thick of it. We'll get into the nitty-gritty. What happens in an abusive relationship? Does the Scriptures give the permission to the man to simply wail on his wife? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does that tell the story of Christ in the gospel? No. Let's pray. I pray that each of us, married, single, hoping to be married someday, we would understand that marriage is not our idea. Marriage was not something our culture came up with. It's not something the government can create. It's not something the government can take away. It's not something the government can give to what isn't truly a marriage Lord you did not create marriage so that we would simply be happy with one another so therefore seeking happiness and seeking love in marriage is not the main thing seeking you is the main thing in marriage Lord your word dictates our lives and so we follow you even if it runs contrary, headlong into the waves of society. And we pray that you would give us backbones to stand. Make us men of courage, make us women who love the gospel, love our husbands. Father, I pray that generational curses, generational sin, generational brokenness would end with the generation in this room. All the generations in this room, Father. Lord, I pray that when we failed in previous relationships, you would continue to forgive us. You would continue to love us. May we continue to bring our brokenness to you. May we continue to repent. To for that's the gospel. Christ loved us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. So that we could become the sons and daughters of God. Lord, open our eyes to these things. Lord, in a minute, we're going to take communion. We just pray you would bless that as well, Father. With The picture of communion, much like the picture of marriage, points to something greater than itself, Father. We ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the, the deacons to come, to gather the, the stuff for communion. Now, as they're coming, uh, just go ahead and come, brothers.